So I got given one of those jobs with go and do some interesting things and we'll pay you a salary and don't worry if you upset people. And I am quite good at upsetting people. So I had a lot of fun. All right. And it's seven years I lasted in IBM with a lot of top cover. And I think it sort of taught me something about if you really believe in something, go for it. And I remember a guy called Philip Oliver, who's a brilliant guy in IBM. And he said, you've got, and he worked for him for a bit. And he said, you've got a choice. You can either try and play the politics, but you'll never survive because you've got to grow up in IBM for that. Or do what you think's right and I'll give you top cover. And that was the nicest thing anybody said to me. And that's what I did thereafter. Welcome to the Passion Struck Podcast. My name is John Miles, a former combat veteran and multi-industry CEO turned entrepreneur and human performance expert. Each week we showcase an inspirational person or message that helps you unlock your hidden potential and unleash your creativity and leadership abilities. Thank you for joining us today on the show and let's get igniting. Hi, I am John Miles, host of the Passion Struck Podcast, and I am so excited to have all of you here especially those of you who are growth seekers, visionaries, leaders, entrepreneurs, and creators of all types. My role in being the host of this show is to bring on high achievers like our guest today, and then tweak out of them their secrets, the way that they learn to overcome their obstacles and how they are living a passion-driven life so you can learn from them and pick up action skills, mindsets, and techniques that you can apply in your own life. And before I get into the introduction, I did want to give a shout out to my fans in the United Kingdom, who again this week were the top watching group of our YouTube channel and now constitute over 30% of all views on the channel. I'm going to start today's show off by reading you two different quotes. The first one is this, seeking the ideal has a long history. It produces many saints, but few paradigm changes. And the second one is, true values are not taught and declared. They evolve through the acts and interaction of the living. They are understood at a near tacit level by those who live them. And both of those quotes are from my guest today, Welch, futurist, knowledge management expert, and complexity science guru, Dave Snowden. I am so excited for you all to hear from this amazing man who literally has millions of fans worldwide and is a extremely sought after speaker. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Dave Snowden. He divides his time between two different roles. First, he's the founder and chief scientific officer of Cognitive Edge and the founder and director for the Center of Applied Complexity at the University of Wales. His work is international in nature and covers government and industry, looking at complex issues relating to strategy and organizational decision-making. He has pioneered a science-based approach to organizations drawing on anthropology, neuroscience, and complex adaptive systems theory. As I mentioned before, he is an extremely popular keynote speaker on a broad range of topics, as well as a pragmatic cynicism and iconoclastic style. His paper with Boone on leadership was the cover article for the Harvard Business Review in November 2007 and also won the Academy of Management Award for the best practitioner paper in the same year. He holds Physicians Extraordinary Professor at the University of Pretoria and Stellenbosch, as well as visiting professor at Bangor University in Wales. I am so excited to have Dave Stone on the show today. It was absolutely a thrill for me to have the opportunity to interview him. And I left out 
one important detail. He has also been hired by a government agency inside the United States to uncover the origins of COVID, which he will also talk about later on the episode today. Without further ado, let's bring on Dave to the show. I am so ecstatic to have with us today, Dave Snowden, as our guest on the Passion Struck podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dave. Pleasure to be with you. Well, as I was going through your background, one of the most pinnacle pivot points it seemed you had was during a time that you were at IBM, and then I believe your company was acquired. And I know, having been in some large companies like that, those acquisitions can, can cause uh, many different things to happen. So I wanted to understand and thought that that was a good leadoff point for our discussion today. Yeah, I was in a company called Data Sciences. Yeah. I was one of the 50 managers who'd actually done a management buyout of it. And um, we're in the process of launching the company on the market. So we got to the point where we, we were going to pay off the venture capitalists. Yeah. By that time, I was running strategy, and there were three companies I was going to go and buy the minute we had the cash from the sale. And Friday night, IBM phoned up, um, and by Sunday, we were sold. It was actually scarily quick. Because, of course, we'd done all the due diligence to float the company, and they just picked up on that. And I lost a lot of good relationships over that. But, yeah, IBM was, was interesting because they, get, they worked out what I'd done within data sciences to create a thing called the Genus Program, which had been gone from zero to about 60% of our revenue. It, it had turned the company around. So I got given one of those jobs with go and do some interesting things and we'll pay you a salary and don't worry if you upset people. And I am quite good at upsetting people. So I had a lot of fun, all right? And it's seven years I lasted in IBM with a lot of top cover. And I think it sort of taught me something about if you really believe in something, go for it. And I remember a guy called Philip Oliver, who's a brilliant guy in IBM. And he said, you've got, and he worked for him for a bit. And he said, you've got a choice. You can either try and play the politics, but you'll never survive because you've got to grow up in IBM for that. Or do what you think's right, and I'll give you top cover. And that was the nicest thing anybody said to me. And that's what I did thereafter. Well, that's great. And I personally know what this meaning of top cover is, uh, because at one point, I worked for a competitor of IBM's as the CIO of Dell. And I can tell you in similar circumstances, you kind of lived or died by your top cover. And unfortunately for me, once multiple of my top covers had been exited from the company, eventually you run out of top covers who can protect you. That, that happened to me. I mean, after Lou Gerstner left, the writing was on the wall. Yeah. But by that time I was, I mean, it was quite interesting. Because, I mean, the other thing which was weird on that is I got summoned down to Arlington in DC when I was working for IBM and I was based in the UK, but in Boston all the time because that's where the Institute was. And they, it was a CIA and they were kind of like interested in my work on narrative and complexity theory. And I'm a good world socialist. So this was a little bit of a shock. Either way, I sort of went down and met this doddery old guy. Didn't know who he was, but I did what everybody does is look at somebody's bookshelf and then use that people's bookshelves. And he had all of Patrick O'Brien's seafaring novels there, which is a passion of mine as well. So we got into this passionate argument for about 50 minutes with everybody else in the meeting because he was obviously the senior guy. 
And then I saw a picture of him with Ronald Reagan and realized I was talking with Admiral John Poindexter, who I'm, you know, given my own political background, I'm not meant to like. Um, but by that time, I really liked him and he was a really, and he's still a good friend, right? And effectively, I worked under his direction then for several years. And that was absolutely fascinating because all of a sudden, this sort of theoretical idea was being looked at in the context of counterterrorism. And I was in Arlington the night before 9-11. I flew out that night, picked up the news the next day. My team didn't know if they were alive for the next three weeks. And then it all got very serious. And I think that was one of the big benefits of IBM. I mean, you, you could do some really serious work because you had that brand behind you. Yeah, I, I absolutely know that that is the case because we, at, when I was at Lowe's, got to do some very serious work with IBM. And at that point in time, we were trying to build the first seamless customer experience. And the thing that was dogging us at, the, at that time, and I, and I was at that point running all data and software development, was we could not find computational models that could take in real time the order management data that was coming in from the custom customers and pass it through all the systems so that it could enable that whole ecosystem to take the input in and then expose that output out. So it was the true knowledge management system. And as you might guess, IBM was very interested in this capability at the time. But we, you know, we were trying to run it on the mainframe. That wasn't working. We, we went to the, you know, we stepped down from there and tried using Unix systems. And, you know, I, it turned out not to be a horsepower issue. It turned out to be what I think was a processing issue. Um, but I'd like to get a little bit of your perspectives on that from that angle. Yeah, it was actually, I mean, yeah, another side story on IBM. And one of the weird things is we got taken over by IBM and they got rid of all our, our PC-based email system and put us on host. And only those of us who'd grown up with mainframes could cope with it because we knew about PF keys and inconsistent use. And it was interesting to see they hadn't changed. I think the... The, the knowledge management, I mean, it's interesting at the moment, it's coming back into play. I mean, it's like knowledge management goes through this cycle of being fashionable, and then people start to focus on codification because they think it's all about rules and it's all about databases. Yeah? And then, of course, that doesn't work, so the whole thing gets abandoned, but the need's still there, and five or six years later, the cycle comes around again. There's a big conference every year um, in Washington um, called KM World. And I have the unique distinction of having keynoted at every one of these conferences from when it was on the West Coast. I think I've done 30 now. One year wow. I didn't turn up. So they made me go virtual and I didn't know. I, they put a pumpkin head. It was Halloween. Then. There was a pumpkin on the stage and I was speaking through the pumpkin. And I didn't find out until afterwards. And this oh my gosh. will turn up next time. But what you see is the consistent mistake. And there's a famous saying by Polanyi, all right? You always, we always know more than we can say. And I extended that to say not only that, we can always say more than we can write down. And what you can codify is about 10% of what people know. And that's the big problem. It's the focus on structure process. We do a lot of work now, as it comes from the counterterrorism work, where we're working with narrative-based understanding on narrative databases, a lot of work at COVID at the moment on lessons learned, because you want real-time stories. You don't want highly structured doctrine to sure. take military work. But also, I think, fascinatingly, we're bringing back in the apprentice models. 
because there's a whole body of knowledge which it takes you two or three years to actually acquire. You can't just read a manual or, or follow a process. And I think that, from my point of view, is something it, it still deeply frustrates me is, is people adopting an, a purely engineering approach to human systems. Yeah, and I mean, I took my daughter. I mean, she was doing, she now works, she's now over 30, an anthropologist and working for me and criticizing my inability to understand the losing assemblage theory. That's what happens when you have daughters who are master's level anthropologists, right? But when she did her A-levels, which is the sort of 16-year-old things, she, she got a textbook. I, we, we'd agreed she'd do psychology as one of her subjects. And she came back with a textbook and showed me the opening chapter. And it said the basic assumption of psychology is that the human brain is a limited capacity information processing device. And we phoned up the school the next day and switched to subjects. But that was still the common assumption you know, when we were doing KM and IBM and elsewhere. It was the computer model and human beings were just not very good computers. You know, I think that's a, a really good point. And it was something, if I go back to that experience that we were, we were really trying to work with because this was one of the first times in my career I was exposed to Agile. And we were trying to divide this project up in a bunch of Agile teams. And we spent tons of time doing consumer research. And instead of designing this system, like many were designed at that point, which were, was kind of a, an outward in, we put the consumer completely in the middle and then tried to think back to, you know, how do we enable their life to be the best it could be when they experienced our stores. And so one of the most critical elements we found was that I think at that time, Lowe's, like many companies, had this just spaghetti architecture that mm -hmm. we inherited from... I, I, I call it spaghetti or accidental architecture, but all these systems come in for, for good use. But over time, over 20, 30 years, there's so many interconnections. And by that time, many people have left who don't understand it. So one of the most important things that we had to, to deal with was the metadata. And I know that that's a big area that you deal with. So when you're looking at something, you know, like COVID that's been around us, you know, what what are the different types of metadata that you analyze for that? And our work is, I mean, it's a large part of what we do is what's called high abstraction metadata. So the easiest way to explain that is if you do, if you have an employee satisfaction survey, let's take one way people gather data and you get this question. It says, does your manager consult you on a regular basis? Scale of zero, not at all, 10 all the time, right? That's really common. Yeah. Right. And you see the same in um, you know, Net Promoter Score and all these sort of things, right? And I remember phoning up IBM HR, and I was on a watch list, by the way, so I, I, UK wouldn't talk with me. I got put through to head office. And one of the reasons is I'd actually run a three-month program which had proved that Myers-Briggs was less accurate than astrology in predicting team behavior. And for some reason, they were annoyed with me over it, right? Um, and I said, how am I meant to answer this? Because I've got several managers and sometimes they consult me and sometimes they don't. And sometimes they should and sometimes they shouldn't. You're asking a context specific, a context free question in what's a context specific world, which I'm not sure she understood. And she said, average your experience over the year and stop causing trouble and slam the phone down on me. Now, we take a very different approach. So we ask a non hypothesis question. You know, 
managers may in different contexts, it's different. So we'll ask what story would you tell your best friend if they were off the job in your work group, which is non-hypothesis. And then we ask people to interpret the story. And this is a method we developed on counterterrorism and you know, did the patents and everything. So we end up with a series of triangles and each of the triangle has three balanced positive items. So one of them, for example, will say, in this story, was the manager's behavior altruistic, assertive, or analytical? Now, what happens with that is it forces a cognitive load on the brain. The brain doesn't know what answer it should give. So you move to thinking slow, not thinking fast, um, to use the famous phrase. And of course, with six triangles, I get 18, meta 18 metadata points. So that's called high abstraction metadata. Yeah? And the work we did on counterterrorism, which gave rise to that, is using children as ethnographers to understand street stories. And that sort of metadata is, is input. And this is, by the way, it's an issue about cognitive sovereignty or epistemic justice, because power lies in interpretation, not in contribution. So what we focused on was allowing people to interpret their own narrative, and the metadata came from that. Yeah. Now, to come back to your point, and I'll be brief now, High abstraction metadata searches discover novelty, because if you can say, if I knew the answer to the problem, I'd index it like this, and then the system recalls all the stories that other people have indexed like this, you find things you didn't expect to find. And that, to me, is actually what knowledge management is meant to be about. Anything else is information management. And I think that's a great clarifying comment for those of you who don't really understand what, what the difference is who are, who are trying to listen because a lot of people look at them in the same way. And I think you... I think, yeah, and it, it's, it's the old problem, all right? I mean, and, and also it's partly instantiated by that awful DIKW model, the one which goes data, information, knowledge, wisdom, because that just means good information management programs don't get funding because they're not knowledge management, so people rebatch them. It's like Agile's the same. You mentioned Agile, all right? I was working with Telstra in Australia. And they've got waterfall projects. I mean, they're massive infrastructure projects. They're waterfall. But nobody got promoted unless they were agile. So they created one-year sprints so they could say they were agile. And, you know, corporations get into this sort of nonsense. And it, it frustrates the hell out of me because actually different things work in different contexts. But everybody wants a universal. Well, they do. And I think one of the areas that we share in common based on other interviews I've heard you, you do is... When I was being trained in, in the military, I, I was lucky to, to, to do PSYOPs. And one of the things I learned was that the type of leadership that you have to invoke in different situations differs. And so I always, when people always ask, what type of leadership do you practice? And it gets me in trouble. I always say situational. Now, I think my default is you know, to be a servant leader or what I now as a gardener leader, but one thing that I've, I've read about in, in your studies is that you believe in different circumstances, you have to react differently. I think I, the other big thing, and this comes from complexity theory, right? So what I do is I take a natural science approach, right? And we use natural science as a constraint. So we know things about cognition, we know things about systems, so that, that, that's kind of like the basis. One of the things we actually know from complexity is connections matter more than things. So if I'm doing leadership development, I'm focused on how do I connect people in different ways, not on developing leadership qualities. And if you do that, leadership decisions nearly always then become contextual because 
they're arising out of the connections with people in different circumstances in different times. And, you know, one of the big things we focus on you know, is the concept of crews, which comes from the military, in that people are trained in role and role expectation. Yeah, and the crews right. have cognitive capacity more than the best individuals. So this cult of the individual leader, I think is actually deeply worrying because what you get is it's either a rigid process or the inspirational leader. And that's actually just really bad science because most of the time leadership can be distributed. Sorry, I'm running around a bit, but no, 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 no. I, I you're going, you're kind of going where I where next I wanted week, you. Get, I mean, I've just finished writing; it will be published next week. Um, a joint publication between my Knevin Centre and the European Commission. Yeah? So it's the first field guide to managing complexity and crisis, which has been published. It comes out. Next Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things, and Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers... According to a recent survey, saying Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash PassionStruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash PassionStruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash PassionStruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to Passionstruck. Next week. And one of the things we're focused on there is that, and I'll give an illustration, is if you're a leader in a crisis, you only make decisions at the start, and your decisions are draconian to give yourself options downstream. And people like um, the New Zealand Prime Minister did that. She actually broke the law but she created that space, which gave her more room to move, whereas the UK and the US didn't. You know, they waited too late. But after you've done that, the role of the leader is coordination, not decision-making, and people keep getting that wrong. Good, if a good leader never makes a decision, they coordinate people. Well, and I think that's an absolutely amazing point you've just made, and I'm gonna, and I'm gonna give two examples from my own life on it. Um, so I've seen this on both sides when I was in the military. Um, I was fortunate, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this organization, but when I was there, it was called Joint Interagency Task Force East. It's now JADF South, and yeah. it coordinates all the counter-drug interdiction. And it was, for me, one of the most fascinating jobs I ever had, because I think it was the beginning point of starting to get fusant, um, the fusion of different intelligence correct. But what we really learned was that 
we could give direction, we could coordinate the assets, but you know, unless you're on that ship that's going after the go fast or, you know, that aircraft that's going after that drug smuggling aircraft in the air, you don't have eyes on of what's happening in that exact situation. So it, it, you had to be hands off, but eyes on type of methodology. And the bigger the crisis, the more important. Because actually, if you're in the leadership role, you can't afford to make too many mistakes. Otherwise, people will lose confidence. So one of the ways you don't make many mistakes is not to make many decisions. But you have lots of other people making decisions and you make sure the right people talk with the right people. Yeah. I think the other interesting thing on this, and it, it comes back to the metadata issue. So if you're trying to coordinate people from different agencies, and you did a lot of this work on the intelligence agencies in the States, if you try and make them share data and you make it a legal requirement, they'll sort of do it, but they won't really. They'll still hide stuff. And that's just life, right? I mean, we all learn this, right? We focused on if you share abstract metadata, then we can discover that we need to ask you for specific items of information. Because if you go to somebody and say, look, I've just run this search and we think these three things with these numbers are relevant, can I look at them? People will generally say yes, but if you say, can I have access to all of your data? They'll say no. Yeah. So, because when you ask for, and, and that's one of the other things, metadata is far more important than data, partly because it reveals patterns, but B, because it has less ownership and therefore it's more likely to be shared. Yeah, and, and that's a, another great point. And a, a, an illustration that the listener may comprehend is when I was again at Lowe's, put metadata in context in a retailer, it would be things like your single view of a customer, single view of a store, location, product, etc. But one of the most critical areas is something called product-specific selling attributes. It's a mouthful, mm -hmm. but what it really means is if you're looking at a fan, what are the different attributes of the fan? What size is it? What, what are the colors of the blade, the, the inner workings. And, you know, at that point in time, you had Menards, Ourself, Home Depot, Sears, Ace, True Value, that were all working with these vendors. And this third party came on the scene called Big Hammer and convinced all of us to work together on this. Um, and so in this case, we would, we would share the product-specific selling attributes because it benefited the whole ecosystem, mm -hmm. but we wouldn't share the other metadata elements that made us unique. And I, I think that's probably a good illustration of that concept. Yeah, and I think that's quite actually something the Agile movement didn't learn. So years before, when I was in data sciences, we set up a thing called DSDM, which was about rapid application development and JAD, right? Um, it was actually one of the three feeds into the Agile Manifesto. The others being XP and Scrum. Um, so DSDM was one of those. And because we were British, we did it one one evening over dinner in a pub in Cheltenham rather than going to a ski resort, right? But it was actually three competitors because we worked there. If three competitors came together and made a standard, that would create a market and we would all actually make more revenue out of it. And... Agile never got that because they tried to put everything behind firewalls and make it proprietary. And, and that's still a problem with Agile. I mean, they are, it's heavily commoditized now anyway with things like SAFE. That's, when something like SAFE comes along, something is reaching the end of its life cycle. 
because it's too structured. Right? Um, the other indication says he feeling wicked is is you you know something's coming to the end of its life cycle when IBM adopts it as strategic <laughs> because they tend to be a late adopter yeah of any consultancy approach. Well, I think you absolutely have something there. And unfortunately, in the case of IBM, I was hoping when they bought Red Hat that they would have adapt, adopted more of the Red Hat culture. But I think from what I'm, I'm hearing and seeing from insiders, it seems to be going the other way. Yeah, I get the same feed. But I mean, I could, I've, I've been telling them that. I mean, when IBM took us over, right, I, with, I, I just went out and talked with everybody who'd been taken over by IBM before. And I remember coming back to the office and saying, guys, all this crap about them wanting us to keep our culture is just nonsense. What they want to do is watch us for a year, then they'll cherry pick. So I said, the only way we can survive is by saying we want to be IBM tomorrow. And that was actually an extremely successful strategy because they weren't ready for it. And I remember the other thing I said is each of you are general. I said, I'm okay. I've got this really interesting job, which I can do what the hell I want. Yeah. But any of you want to survive as a general manager, yeah, spend, employ an IBM. D grade or VP grade, somebody approaching retirement, it will cost you a quarter of a million, 350K a year, and they'll handle the IBM bureaucracy for you. You can't afford to follow it. Yeah, all you have to do is decide what to do, and this person will work out how to say it. So IBM will And yeah, and I said the same to my contacts in Red Hat, but they haven't taken the same advice. And sooner or later, the board will absorb them. That's, that's the way it works. Did you know that Forbes magazine recently cited that 70% of individuals who do personal development, masterminds, and one-on-one -on -one coaching benefited from better work performance, increased communication skills, and overall better relationships. And we at PassionStruck are obsessed with self-development coaching and mentorship. That is why we've created a free resource to help you unlock your hidden potential. Because people doing great things in business and life are just like you, only they've had a coach along the way. And we've got that covered too. Let us show you the systems and frameworks that we teach growth-minded individuals to help them step into their sharp edges, execute on their passion journeys, and get predictable results time and time again. Go to passionstruck.com slash coaching right now and let's get igniting. It's unfortunate because so many of these strategic multi-billion dollar acquisitions that are made are on the premise that, that it's going to be a cultural change and it's going to bring yeah. this or that. If you, if you look at the figures, all right, I mean, I got, I got very drunk one night with one very senior person in IBM, all right? He had a crate of Pinot Noir and just how we say the crate half the crate disappeared by three o'clock in the morning, all right? And we took every IBM acquisition. We were both ex-accountants, yeah, so we could do this, all right? So we took all the IBM acquisitions and worked out how big IBM should be, if it, should be if it had just maintained value. It was actually quite scary because effectively they cannibalized each acquisition to maintain a very slow growth rate. And the industry, and that's what you see with most acquisitions these days. Nobody's trying to create the new Apple or the new Google. They're trying to create something that Apple or Google will buy. And that's actually quite dangerous for the world. And can you go into that a little bit more? Because I think that's a good point. I think, yeah, I think it's, if you, if you go into the valley at the moment, all right, every, um, it's partly because of the VC market. You haven't got the sort of Steve Jobs or people like that who are just passionate about something and want to make it happen. I mean, 
you know, Silicon Valley was a wonderful satire because it was based on reality, right? What you've got is the issue is to get to the point where somebody big buys you and your venture capital gets a lot of money back. And therefore, the sort of short, the, it's short-term strategic, it's short-term strategic link rather than long-term strategic. Um, and that's going to damage industry, I think, because nobody's doing anything really radical you know, in that sense. They're just augmenting or complementing. But then the big guys, when they buy things, I mean, IBM bought data sciences to create what became IBM Global Services because IBM didn't have a service background, like they bought Lotus for software. And it kind of like was okay for a bit, but then they started to acquire things like PwC, which was you know, a major mistake from my point of view. But they didn't understand the business models. IBM's culture was still physics. And there was a point where services was 50% of our revenue, but service research was 1% of research. It was all about physics. And the manufacturing framework, you know, if you're a consultant, right, you, you're hunter-gatherers. Right? You maybe do it three days for free in order to get a big contract. I mean, that's all the big six work. You couldn't do that in IBM. If you wanted to do anything below 43.5% profit margin, you had to get approval from some, somebody in Tokyo or somewhere like that. <laughs> and the cultures couldn't survive that. The good people, after a period, just gave up and left. And then it got homogenized into a yet another product company. Well, I got to hear some of this uh, firsthand, and I'm not sure you ever met him when you were going through your sale, but when I was at Dell, I worked with a gentleman who was the head of our corporate development named Dave Johnson, and Dave had spent 25 years doing the same thing at IBM, and had he had done most of the software acquisitions, and he was ex the person who acquired PwC, but and that was part of the reason he left was because of the mismanagement of how what he had wanted to do with the acquisition what actually happened. I mean, it was um, particular anyway. I mean, they call. I mean, anybody who calls themselves Monday is going to go under. HP turned them down. I mean, I I was part one of the audit teams, and we basically said we don't need to buy this. We just need to wait four months, and we can pick up what we want from it because they're going to go bankrupt. But, but Gin, I mean, that was the point. Ginny needed to acquire a, a lot of people very quickly. Uh, that was, the, to my mind, that was the motivation. Yeah. Interesting. Well, speaking about motivations, um, one of the topics I, I wanted to, to broach here with you is I, in, in a previous life before I started doing Passion Struck, I got to interview some very interesting people. And one of them uh, was a lady, a former CIA um, operative. Um, who ended up becoming the head of corporate responsibility for Facebook. Her name's Yael Eisenstadt. And we had a very interesting conversation as, as you're talking about these startups that are building new technologies, and it can even be a big one, how they're not looking at the full implications as they're building them. And many of them don't have very strong ethics or not necessarily the ethics that they need to have especially as they're unleashing AI and other things mm -hmm. um, on the world. I wanted to kind of get your take on it because I think you have a, a strong position here. Yeah. I mean, I, I wrote a paper recently for the ITEL community. They were the publisher of a new book and they wanted it. So I wrote a chapter and, and it's, it's online, I think. I basically said, 
these days nobody should be allowed into any engineering software role without a training in ethics because the implications of what we're doing in technology are really scary and i think the trouble with facebook i think less apple the, the apple facebook confrontation moment is really interesting facebook have, have never been immoral they're amoral and that's actually far more scary because they're not concerned about the implications of what they're doing so for my various and many sins yeah until recently um i was reading tweets every morning for i've got banned i got withdrawal and Trump uses key phrases to activate belief systems in a body of narrative. It's called an assemblage. Yeah. Yeah. And Facebook propagates that because they clump like with like. There's insufficient diversity in the system. And I, I think, you know, that those companies are now they're, they're switching from amoral to immoral because they now understand the implications of what they're doing and they're not changing. Yes. And I, I'm sure you've watched the, the, the new uh, net, net let's film the social dilemma. And I think it did a, a very good job, if you've seen it, of kind of laying this out for that and, and what it could be. You know, what Yale was talking about is the implications of even a device such as the Fitbit and unknowingly putting that on the arms of soldiers and them being deployed in operations and foreign adversaries being able to use that information to track where they're at and how oftentimes we're just putting things out there that we don't understand how it could be used yeah. in other ways. Well, the amount of monitoring, I mean, I won't use things like Microsoft Teams because they do too much monitoring. Yeah, I mean, I think Apple are quite interesting. Tim, Tim, Tim Cook is fascinating um, because I think he's realized that privacy is probably one of the most important things around. And he's taking that position. I mean, before the big tech giants haven't fought each other on, on moral grounds, but he's attacked Facebook. And I think that's strategically well-timed. Yeah. Uh, yes, I think you, you're onto something there. And, and he has taken Apple in many ways, I don't think anyone would have expected when he came on that have occurred over the past uh, years that he's been at the helm. I think he was actually very clever because he, he knew the trope after after with the trope when he took over was nothing is the same anymore. Yeah. So there was no point in Apple doing anything novel for two or three years because the market had already decided they wouldn't. Yeah. And I think then he started to, I think what he really did is he took what was Jobs' original vision, which is it's not about the hardware, it's not about the software, which is why Apple took over from Microsoft and Microsoft took over from IBM. He realized it was about an ecosystem. And Apple is still the only ecosystem approach. And I think that that's why they're going to survive, right? Because once you're in the Apple ecosystem, you don't really want to leave it. It's not that you can't, but you don't want to because it just works. Yeah, and I, you're absolutely right. And when I was at Dell, and when I first got there, I was working very closely with a gentleman named Ron Gehrigs. And I you probably don't know the name, but Ron had been a long-term executive at Motorola, had created the Razor, was known as the inspiration for it. But what he wanted to do in the mobile space was to create our own version at Dell of, of kind of that Apple ecosystem. But he wanted it to be, you know, Dell would allow it to create one customer experience, but the difference between us and Apple was going to be 
he was going to allow different plugins to it so that yeah and that would never work because it means your speed to market is lower but what 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 jobs realize is if you control the hardware and the software you can move higher functionality to market much faster with a loyal following yeah and and i mean i left ibm and i mean i bought a thinkpad when i left because it was on the staff discount all right so i took early retirement and I still remember about a year and a half later, I was at Greenwich University. And I said, this bloody thing is running like a dog. And this techie said, well, you haven't reinstalled the operating system. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, why do you think IBM called it in every year? And I said, you mean I've got to reinstall the operating system? And I, mean, I was going on, to, I went into the Apple store in San Jose and, and showed them the PC and said, I've had enough of this. I need an Apple. And it was like going to a Baptist chapel and saying, you've discovered God. Or I, I went out half an hour later everything configured in my first Apple Mac and I've never looked back since and it all just works. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right about that. I've, I've rarely, if ever had trouble with my Mac computers. Now, think, Dave, yeah. The, the thing there, which I think is important is I think what jobs realized, I'm still quite proud of the fact I had a pile of books thrown at me by Steve jobs. That's my only meeting with him and he got angry and threw a pile of books. So I'm still proud of that one. I think what Apple have realized is that technology has moved from being an exciting new thing to being a tool. And that's when everything changes. And I think he understood that shift. And Google didn't, and Microsoft didn't, and IBM didn't. Yeah. I think that's a very salient point. Well, Dave, I wanted to, if I, if I could, maybe switch directions here a little bit. So the part of the reason that people are on this podcast is to learn advice on how they can unlock kind of their hidden potential, overcome their fears, et cetera. And I remember um, hearing you talk one time about uh, a person I've read pretty thoroughly, uh, Clayton Christensen, and a concept that he had called induced failure. You know, oftentimes in, in his case, companies don't see the change that's coming. And so it's catastrophic. And I think the same could be said about our own personal lives. Are, are there any words of wisdom that you can give using that concept uh, that could be applied to an individual person's life? Yeah, I had the privilege of working with Clayton in one major client. And what you're talking about there is what he talked about as competence-induced failure. So companies don't fail because they are poor. They fail because they could too bad at the old paradigm. And they don't see the pattern. And I think, and it's quite interesting, you see this happen all the time. And there's, I have a whole theory around it called Fletcher's Curve, which basically says that's the cycle. So when something gets dominant, you know that it's going to go under. Um, it's called the Kodak syndrome. Yeah, I, right. yeah, do it. And I think we, we actually know some of the cognitive neuroscience reasons for that. So Part of the problem, I think, for individuals at the moment is people are too specialized. They're not generalists, right? Generalists actually can accommodate faster because they've got more patterns to available to them. And to give an illustration, when I went up to secondary school at the age of 11, um, so this is 1964, I think, right? Um, so it gives you my age. And um, we were allowed to wear long trousers for the first time. Until you were 11 in the UK, you were weren't allowed to wear long trousers, which in British winters was, shall we say, nasty. And we had to walk the school for three miles as well. And the first thing we had to do is, I remember walking to the front of the class, I got called up first and given a card, and it said, you support capital punishment. Now, I think capital punishment is abhorrent. I think societies which have it are just uncivilized, right? 
Um, but I had to speak for seven minutes without preparation on something which I profoundly disagreed with. And we did that every week for from the age of 11 to 18. And wow. that made us generalists because you never knew what you were going to get hit with. So you read everything. And you learned to argue things you didn't agree with, which made you better, you made you more critical. And I think one of the reasons people lack resilience is they're over-specialized. So the one bit of advice, I mean, at any one stage, I'm reading a history book, a science book, some science fiction, maybe a novel, all in parallel. And you need that sort of, you need that, and it gives you more patterns to absorb and more ability to see weak signals. And I think that's the key thing. Okay. And organizations go down the same route. They become too specialized. So how, in that same scenario, how would you apply the concept of deterministic chaos then? You know, which is... Uh, well, we, yeah, we, we, we use that in a sort of wisdom of crowds approach. So again, this is... So faced with a situation, we put together a situational statement and then we present that, say, to the whole of your workforce and the whole and everybody interprets it, high abstraction metadata in the same 10-minute period. And then we draw maps from that. And what that shows is the dominant views and the outlier views. Yeah, And the outlier views are what you're after because they're people who are thinking differently. Right? Now, deterministic chaos, that's kind of like a use of chaos because we're, all the agents are separate. None can interact, so it's, it's quasi-random. Deterministic chaos itself is, as it says, deterministic. You can run models because you get, you, you've got a normal distribution, right? But the minute right. things are connected, you're into a Pareto distribution, and that's complex. So you very, very rarely get a chaotic system in humans. It's nearly always complex because we find ways to connect things. And at that point, you can't use that sort of maths anymore. Yeah, and I find sometimes, though, we get into these complex systems and we actually need some chaos to get us out of the patterns that no, we get into no, that's the forest that that's a make that's that's the forest cycle all right and that's chaotic systems and stuff like that that's actually very dangerous you get into this myth until everything collapses something new can't happen and it's it's kind of like almost like the rapture again and it actually it's kind of like it's okay as long as the world can recover. But the world can't recover from that sort of thing anymore. You've got to use complexity without chaos. And that's actually not difficult. And that's, that's how you evolve a system and get it to change in radical ways. If you fall into chaos, you don't know how you're going to fall out of it. It's a dangerous place to take things. Okay. And I know it's, you know, we're probably running shorter on time, but I can't have a conversation with you without talking about Kinevan and how you would potentially take what we're talking about, that order, complexity, chaos system. And how would you apply that um, if you were a listener in, in your endeavors? Well, I mean, I'll give you the illustration. I and mean, this is in the EU field guide. If you have a crisis, you're in chaos. Yeah, everything is all over the place. It doesn't last for long. So in Kinevin, what you do is you basically create some draconian constraints to shift yourself into what's called the apparatic confused. Uh, Aperia is a key word. It means a state of creating deliberate paradox, which prevent you from resolving a problem until you've thought about it more. And once you've done that, some stuff becomes ordered and some stuff becomes complex and some stuff becomes what we call with the deterministic chaos point. It's a hypothesis generation. 
and you get some things which are conflicted experts. And I say, we, we've laid all of that out in the handbook. So you, you, you get rid of the chaos and then you move different aspects into different domains. The key thing which Kanavin teaches you is there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. And generally, if I look at organizations, it's like there's nothing wrong with business re-engineering. Yeah, we just took it too far. There was nothing wrong with waterfall, but we just took it too far. And the whole of Kinevin is to say different things work in different places. You don't abandon the old, you realize its boundaries, and then you create new things. So if you create those boundaries, how would you apply this then to a person who, you know, is facing this dilemma of, you know, they're stuck in what I call the comfort zone or in a phase where they know they're not happy and they, they want to break out, but they're afraid uh, to do so for various reasons. Yeah, I was actually advising somebody on that this afternoon. And I remember saying, I, I mean, I left IBM, all right? It just became impossible. In fact, it got really nasty. And so I knew I had to go, and it was very comfortable, and, and that's there. And it's not a decision I've ever regretted, right? But I think there were a couple of key things. One is, by the time I left IBM in my field, my brand was stronger than IBM. If I'd been who I was because I was IBM, I wouldn't have got the business for more than about a year or so. And a lot of people make that mistake. You know, they leave, they carry their clients with them, but then they haven't got a reputation independently of their organization. So you need to be careful on this, right? The other thing is, to be quite honest, you're more likely to succeed if you leave, if you're controversial than you're not, because you stand out. And that's why actually saying what you think counts. I mean, I'm not nice about this anymore. Yeah? If, if somebody comes along with some bloody homogenized management consultancy solution or says they're going to implement the Spotify model, when Spotify themselves said there is no model, then I'm, I'm happy to call them out. And I think calling, calling out things which you know are wrong ultimately actually makes you a better person and gives you more employability. Because okay. people remember. Yeah? So uh, along those lines, so, you know, we're now... In up to our knees in the fourth industrial revolution uh, with all this technology that's accompanying everything that we're doing. What would you be your biggest advice for, you know, someone who's a generation Z or, you know, a millennial into, you know, what steps would you take to prepare themselves to be better for what the future is going to going to hold get involved in something like extinction rebellion otherwise you won't have a future um all of the fourth industrial revolution is dependent on power and you know there are circumstances in which it won't be available to us anymore so i think the next generation has got to be engaged with the planet and other cultures and other people it's no longer possible just to take an industrial approach okay and i think the last area i i wanted to to go in is I have been doing a ton of research and that research shows that entrepreneurship and business vitality, the two forces that made much of Western culture and where I'm sitting, the United States, the envy of the rest of the world have been on a slow decline and some may say dying for decades, whereas other parts of the world, such as Asia, South America, et cetera, are taking a different trajectory. And I wanted to understand if, if you've seen that in your own research. And yeah, and there's there some interesting reasons for it. I mean, Northern Europe, North America are kind of like the exemplars of the individual. It's called social atomism. 
you know, really comes from the growth of Protestantism, if you go back to the Reformation. So the individual is everything, yeah? yeah. Whereas the other areas you mentioned, China, Latin America, interestingly, where I come from in Wales, are commutarian cultures. They're, they're defined by their relationships with the community. Now, in conditions of resource starvation, where you haven't got infinitely available resource, and that was the basis of entrepreneurial capitalism, the danger is you, you fall back to feudalism. But if you look at what China have done and Singapore have done, and China has always done this. I mean, they, they let the barbarians conquer them, then they make them Chinese. That's what they've been doing with capitalism. They've made it Chinese. Yeah. And, and state, state, yeah, Singapore the same. One of the most successful, I'm, I'm based in Singapore. My company is, I've got, you yeah. know, yeah, the company's been there ever since I created it. And they've understood that there is a social responsibility, that free market cap capitalism will not work, all right? Now, after COVID, nobody can really argue that anymore because only the state has got the authority and the power to do something about what is not the worst pandemic I will see in my lifetime, and I'm 67 in a month's time, yeah? So all of those models, and this is why it's quite an exciting time to be around at the moment, because those models can't come back in their original form because the world can't cope with them anymore and we're going to have to rethink this. That's a very interesting way to put it. Well, Dave, I, I always like to offer my guest uh, the ability to, to give a shout out for if people would like to hire you to speak or learn more about you, uh, where can they do that? Uh, most of my stuff I do on the blog, blogs are made for me. I love blogging. Yeah. So Cognitive Edge website and the new Canavian Centre website, that's where you can find what I'm doing and what we're doing and how to engage. And we've just gone open source on all of our methods. So we're trying to expand the range of, of what people are doing with our work. Okay. And the last thing I, I was going to take you through is just a quick rapid round of questions, if you don't mm -hmm. mind. Sure. Okay. So the first thing I, I would like to ask is if you were given the opportunity to be on a mission to Mars and you were allowed to establish one law for that new planet, what would that law be? I'd get rid of money and replace it with gifting. That's a great answer. One that I've never heard before. If you were able to meet someone alive or dead who you've never had the privilege of meeting today, who would that be and why? That's more difficult. I think actually Aristotle. Um, he, he introduced science, and I hate Platonism. And Aristotle is the scientific application of social systems. Okay. Um, for you, and I'm not sure if you follow superheroes, most of us do, but if, if you were to, who is your favorite superhero and why? Um, anything which, called itself, which refused to call itself a superhero, because there ain't any such thing. Okay. What is the best compliment you've ever received? Oh, I got called a, a professional curmudgeon. I'm really proud of that one. And what is the most important life lesson a person can learn? Read. Okay, and I'll give you one more. I see all those cups behind you. Mm -hmm. What is the favorite place you've ever visited? Um, I'm still proudly Welsh, all right? And the nearest thing to Wales is New Zealand because A, they play rugby, B, they have mountains, and see, they have a large, arrogant next-door neighbor who thinks they're part of them. So, um, New Zealand. Okay. Well, great. Well, Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I, I truly appreciate it. And I know our listeners are going to get so much value from this episode. Pleasure. 
What an amazing interview that was with Dave Snowden. And I learned absolutely so much from him today. It was one of my most favorite episodes I have done to this point. And we learned all about order, complex, and chaos, and how they interact with each other, and how not only can you apply that from a business perspective, but how you can apply it in your personal life. And I have some amazing episodes coming up in the next few weeks. One is with Navy SEAL, who became an astronaut, Chris Cassidy. Come on the show and discuss his path from going to the Naval Academy, becoming a combat hero with the Navy SEAL teams, to then attending MIT and transitioning into the astronaut program where he did both shuttle flights and was the commander of the International Space Station. And I have former superintendent of the Naval Academy, Vice Admiral Carter, who is also gonna be on the show where he's going to give his leadership lessons from many years of Naval service, both as a fighter pilot, as well as other duties he commanded and as his time as a superintendent and now from his time at Nebraska University. We have so many great guests in addition to these two coming up and I can't wait for you to hear from them and appreciate so much you watching and listening to the show. And if you love these shows, please give us a shout out on Instagram or any of the social networks you're part of. Until next time, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. The purpose of our show is to make passion go viral. And we do that by sharing with you the knowledge and skills that you need to unlock your hidden potential. If you want to hear more, please subscribe to the Passion Struck Podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts at. And if you absolutely love this episode, we'd appreciate a five-star rating on iTunes and you sharing it with three of your most growth-minded friends so they can post it as well to their social accounts and help us grow our Passion Struck community. If you'd like to learn more about the show, and our mission, you can go to passionstruck.com where you can sign up for our, our newsletter, look at our tools, and also download the show notes for today's episode. Additionally, you can listen to us every Tuesday and Friday for even more inspiring content. And remember, make a choice, work hard, and step into your sharp edges. Thank you again for joining us. 